0: We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people— they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied." his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And we ask God's blessing on the reading of his word this morning. There is one man who has almost certainly shaped your life more than almost anybody else, and I suspect you will probably not know his name. You won't know that he even existed. He invented kindergarten or nursery. He invented uh, the, the sort of modern approach to schooling. He invented school playgrounds. Every children's toy that is made today has been in some way influenced by him, especially Lego and Connects. And, and if you're... Um, In any way connected to modern culture, then things like Minecraft, um, the online game, all of these things are influenced um, particularly by him. If you lived in a house, which I realize is somewhat a ridiculous statement to make, if you lived in a house that was built in the late 1800s, which almost certainly none of you did if you live in Livingston, um, then he influenced the design and the layout of that. He has influenced the design and the layout of most public buildings built in the last century. And his name is... No one? Okay. His name is Friedrich Froebel. Friedrich Froebel. You almost certainly didn't know that, but he has influenced almost everything around you in some way or other. He did amazing things, and yet you didn't know who he was, which just goes to show that um, just because you do great things doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be given much glory. But Friedrich Froebel was in part a designer, in part an architect, and developed a whole school of thought. And all of the people who came behind him and were trained in that school have gone on to carry his way of thinking into the wider world. And it's astonishing that you can be so heavily influenced by somebody, your whole life can be shaped by somebody, and you don't really know that person. You don't even know their name, never mind know them personally. Well, at Christmas time, we talk a lot about Jesus, We talk a lot about his name, Jesus, God saves, or Emmanuel, God with us. We talk a lot about his birth and what that signifies and the way in which his birth fulfills a whole load of Old Testament prophecies. We think about where he is going over the course of his ministry and his life, as in Isaiah 53, that his birth points By its very nature towards his death, his ultimate destiny when he came uh, into this world. And we can talk about all of that, but the question is, do we really know Jesus? Do we know him and not just know about him? This morning we're thinking along the theme of Jesus being our conquering king. And the question that I have for you this morning is, if you say that you have been conquered, captured, taken captive by this person. Do you know him or anything about him other than the bare facts, what it is to follow him? This passage is written several hundred years before the birth of Jesus, and yet it tells us exactly what Jesus will be like, and it tells us exactly what he will do in the most amazing detail, such amazing detail, in fact, that there are a whole group of people out there that you may not be aware of in the world who firmly believe that the Old Testament was written after the New Testament, because they cannot believe that the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before and Jesus comes and fulfills it so neatly, so clearly, and so they believe genuinely that Jesus came and did all the things he did and it was all written down and then somebody went and sort of filled in his backstory, as it were, to try and uh, show that this has come from history past. They can't bring themselves to believe that Scripture has been written and shown consistently from the beginning who Jesus would be and what he would come and do. But Isaiah tells us about this so we will know our Saviour. And he tells us the Saviour comes to capture, to conquer a people for himself. And so as we get to know Jesus, we find in our passage in the first three verses that Jesus comes and conquers us by becoming like us. This is the first thing we need to know about Jesus, to appreciate about who he is. In the opening section of this chapter, Isaiah introduces us to the coming Savior, God's anointed one, his Messiah, who's going to be born and he's going to grow up like a young plant. And if you spend any time reading the chapters around this one in Isaiah, that theme comes through a lot. He's going to be like this root that grows out of dry ground, this plant that's going to spring up out of a barren, a dead place, and he will have life despite the fact there's no life uh, anywhere else. And he's not going to be, shockingly, anything to look at. You're not going to be able to distinguish him simply by the way he looks from anybody else. He's not going to be some, you know, seven-foot rugby player, some great hulking brute of a man who just has kingship written all over him. He's not going to have the sort of charismatic personality that sometimes you find with people who just... You just gravitate towards him and where he says, come and follow me, he, he's not going to be like that. There will be other things he has in his character that will lead you to believe he is a king, but that isn't it. He's going to look just like everybody else. And what's interesting is he's is going to have a life that will be marked in every way like ours. you will experience joy and elation and celebration. you will go through loss And grief, we have in the life of Jesus no mention of Joseph after a certain point in the Gospels, after his youngest years, after he's taken uh, to the temple at the age of uh, 12, and and his parents lose him, and they panic, and they have to go back, and they find him there conversing with uh, with the rulers and and the, the scribes and so on. Joseph just vanishes from the biblical account. We have no record of him at all after that, and it's not unreasonable to suggest that Joseph dies at some point in Jesus' younger life because it's only his mother that appears in the later part of the gospel. So Jesus knows what it is to lose family and to lose friends. He knows what it is to experience temptation, although he never succumbs to it, he never gives in to that temptation. He understands in every way what it is to be like you. Not in 21st century Livingston, but to be a human because nothing changes and all the experiences you have are just the same as people 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years before us, just in a different context. He understands entirely what it is to be like you. When we say that Jesus became like us, we've got these two important truths that he identifies with us. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read, therefore, uh, he, as Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to be your savior, to to be your conquering king because he gets what it's like to be you entirely. He has experienced those feelings almost certainly of self-doubt, of of tiredness, of frustration, of anger, of bitterness, of, of all of those things. He's gone through all of that and yet never sinned. And so he knows what it's like to be you, yet the best possible version of you there could ever have been. And so when he dies to take on your sin, he understands exactly what he's doing. When you ask Jesus to be your savior, if you have done so, you didn't sort of manage to hide bits of your life away from him and sort of trick him into saving you. And then after you're through the door, you can then say, oh, that's great because I've got all this other baggage that you didn't know about, but it's too late now. You can't throw me out. That's not how it works. Jesus knew entirely. And he saved you anyway. And he desired to have you as part of his family. Isn't that amazing? He wanted you and me to be part of that family such that he lived a life like yours and died a death in your place. One of the biggest frustrations we have with uh, given we've just had a general election with our MPs and MSPs and so on is they set rules, they make laws, they govern, they tell us how to live and yet very often MPs don't live like us (laughs) or don't live the way they want us to live. I don't know how many times I've seen someone, an MP, or even chiefs of police interviewed on the telly, and they have to sort of mutter away shamefacedly that, yes, they've been done for speeding before, and they've uh, been charged for this, that, and the other. And you think, you people are supposed to be the ones who lead us by example and set the laws and uphold the laws, and you're breaking half of them yourselves, and it frustrates us when we see that. The danger is we see Jesus that way too. He's just like these figures in authority. Yes, 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 he sets the rules. He tells us what our lives are to be like, but he's not held to that standard. He just swans about and does what he likes, not Jesus. We see again and again, both in this passage, but then right the way through Scripture, that Jesus consistently lives out the message he preaches to us, and calls us to live by. So much so that he's willing to die. That is the length he's willing to go to in order to be our Savior, to be not just the one who saves us, but the perfect example to us as to how we're to live. Secondly, when we see what Jesus calls us to live in a certain way, he's never asking us to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He consistently calls us to live in a certain way, but consistently models what it is like to go through that life and live it out, regardless of what at the cost may be, however inconvenient it may have been in his day. And however inconvenient it may be for us to follow him, we recognize in Jesus our Savior, he's done it, he's lived it, he understands and persevered, and so we are called to follow and persevere, and so we can not perfectly because none of us are perfect, but we can do so because our Savior who changed us and shapes us into what he is like was faithful. And so we are able to be faithful, faithful to the Word of God itself, the only way for us to live if we want to know joy and contentment, if we want to witness to Christ, if we want to worship, if we want to see other people saved, living consistently with that life. That is how Jesus conquers our lives, by becoming one of us, like us in every way and yet without sin. He had no majesty, no desirable good looks. We can't turn around and say, well, Jesus just had it all and, and you know, we're just, we're just not like him. We, we, we don't come from the same kind of place. We don't have that same background. It doesn't work because Jesus came and lived a life just like yours. Yes, he was God in the flesh, but he still experienced all the temptations that we did and did so perfectly. Jesus comes to conquer us by by being our Savior, by becoming like us, and then we find he comes and conquers us by taking our place. It's not just that he is the model for us to follow, he actually takes our place. At the um, event we had at the church uh, a week past, with uh, Benjamin, that many of you will know. He organises an event every year in the run up to Christmas time. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his second name. Um, but he organises this event and gets 140 folks from um, his. Community, his Indian community to come, many of whom will be, most of whom will be um, Hindus or people of no religion, and yet they come and they hear the gospel at Christmas time and they have a great time together. And it was wonderful to be part of that. But as part of that um, celebration, we had the Consulate General for India here, which was a bit of a surprise to me. And I, I was um, quite honoured that he would uh, come along to something like this. I was surprised that he would come to a Christian event like this. And he was asked just to say a few words. Um, and he had said at the, at the beginning of our time together, you know it's great to be here and to celebrate Christmas because as Indians and many of us are Hindus, uh, we do celebrate Christmas and Easter and Diwali and a whole host of other festivals that we have together and we esteem Jesus because he's a great man and, and you know we think he is uh, someone to be respected and so on and yet this consulate general made it very clear that is all he viewed Jesus as being, and that is all Christmas and all Easter was, just a celebration of a man and nothing more. But Jesus isn't just a good man. He's not just someone who is admirable and who teaches us the way that we should go. He becomes like us for a reason, so that he can stand in our place And take the punishment that should fall on each one of us. In verse 4 we're told that he surely bears our griefs and our sorrows. It was assumed that he was a sinner because he was crucified. But he was pierced for our breaking of God's law. He was crushed to be our saviour because of our sinful behavior, not his. Do you hear and see how awful it is that Jesus had to be born and live out his life and then die on the cross because of you? It is the act of of the worst injustice, as it were, that, that we break the law and he who never once broke the law is punished in our stead. And yet we're told that God is pleased to bruise him on our behalf and Jesus willingly lays down his life on our behalf. So that might happen that we might not be crushed. That we might not have to bear the own, our, our own terrible penalty for our sinful behavior. He is innocent. You are guilty, yet you go free, and he pays the price for every impure thought, every sinful word, every poorly thought out deed. Jesus takes all our griefs and sorrows and is crushed for them. He takes our place and dies for our sins. Romans 5 says, for while we were yet weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By placing all our sins on Jesus, God forgives us and He captures us. He takes us captive. He owns us after that. He owns us because He made us. But He owns us in a second way because, in order to have that salvation, that freedom from the penalty of sin, we must come and give ourselves completely to Him. That is the price of salvation, that is the cost to us, and it's a cost that is worth paying a thousand times over. Because we escape the judgment that should surely fall on us and have us destroyed, Scripture says, eternally. Scripture calls it hell. It is a place where there is no cease to, 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 to wickedness, to, to awfulness, to, to that separation where God removes all restraint and just lets all the wickedness of those who are on the earth just pour itself out continually, a truly dreadful eternity. And yet, because Christ has come in our place, we are able to, to give him our lives, knowing that when we do so, he spares us for something far greater. Do you remember uh, the space shuttle Columbia? when it broke up and exploded on re-entry in 2003. You may not, depending on your age, but if you do, do you remember why it broke up? It exploded on re-entry because one insulation tile on one of the wings was damaged on takeoff when the shuttle launched, and because of the ferocious heat on re-entry, just that one missing tile allowed the entire wing to disintegrate, and with the wing went the rest of the space shuttle. And the really interesting thing is NASA knew all about that damaged tile almost as soon as it happened. NASA went to um, the engineers who designed the space shuttle and they asked them, Boeing, who made the space shuttle, what should we do about this? Should we do anything? Is it a big problem? Can you advise us on what we're supposed to do? And Boeing put together a PowerPoint presentation outlining what the problem was and what ought to be done about it and how serious it was. But the PowerPoint presentation was so unbelievably dull and so unclear that the NASA scientists read it, heard the presentation and came away thinking, well, we don't need to do anything, it'll all be fine. And as a result, the whole crew died, a space shuttle was lost, lost and the, the space program was put back years. They didn't realize just how big a problem one broken tile was because of a poor communication, a poor presentation. Jesus' death in our place tells us exactly how big a problem our sins are. God himself had to take on human flesh at Christmas time. He had to enter into the world. That tells you how big a problem you and I have. It tells us how big a problem the people in Ladywell and Livingston have. It should tell us how urgently we need to share this message with them, that God himself has to enter into creation and then bear the burden of our sins. We can't deal with it ourselves. It is so far beyond our ability that God himself has to come and address it. Jesus tells you exactly how good God is and how much he loves us, that at the right time he himself would die for people who didn't want anything to do with him in the first place. That is how God conquers us, by coming and not just knowing what it's like to be you, but actually taking your place giving up his own life. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. That is how willing he was to take your place. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and slaughtered on our behalf. Jesus conquers you by coming and taking your place. And then lastly, he comes and conquers by winning victory for us. It wasn't just taking your place. It wasn't just dying a death for your punishment. He actually obtains victory over sin and death for us. And it's words that we read very often. We hear it at funerals. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And all of that has been laid on Christ. It has all been put to death, as it were, by Jesus' work on our behalf. And in the closing few verses, we find that Christ has won the victory. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, shall prolong his days, the Lord shall prosper his hand. Christ wins. It's not that he goes to his death and that's the end of Jesus because he is completely spent seeking to save us. It's not the Leonardo DiCaprio moment in Titanic where he lets his beloved float on the big door that he could totally have fitted on as well. And and she is saved and he has to die and that's the end of that person. It's not that. Jesus' victory over death is so complete that death itself can't hold him, and so the Lord raises him back up to life, prolongs his days, not just for a few years, for eternity, and the will of the Lord is that everything Jesus does will prosper. Satan cannot stop the spread of the gospel because nothing can stop Jesus. God himself is at work prospering whatever Jesus does. Such is his victory over sin and death that death can't hold him and he's raised back to life. We find that out of that anguish, out of that moment, God himself is satisfied. And we are made righteous. The victory over death is so complete that we, when God looks at us, sees the perfection of Christ's work. He doesn't see our sin. The way Scripture talks about that is he doesn't remember our sin anymore. And that's not that God is somehow suffering amnesia. And when he looks at us, he knows that we must have done something wrong in the past. He just can't remember. That's not what it means. It means our sin has been blotted out so completely by Jesus. It is as if it never existed. It is as if it never happened. That is how free you are from sin and death. It's like your sin never existed. You still feel the shame. You still bear the memories of it in your mind that that embarrass you, that make you cringe and shudder when you think how awful you have been perhaps or the things that you've done and said. And yet, as far as God is concerned, it's gone. There is no one who can condemn God's children, Paul says in Romans and yet we constantly give ourselves over to temptation and the belief that living in a sinful way will be a greater blessing to us, and we give ourselves over completely to living the kind of life that tries to make it look as if we're righteous without actually investing ourselves in that new righteous life, however hard that may be. As you know, I have two young girls in my home, and so my house is full of plastic kitchen stuff. We've got no end of plastic toast, plastic chicken, plastic fruit, a, plastic, uh, a wood cooker, a plastic kettle and all this kind of stuff. But if I was to content myself with those things and try and sustain my life through those things, I am going to die doesn't matter how much plastic toast I eat, it's not going to nourish me, or plastic sausages or bacon, however real it may look, it's not going to help me in any way. I need the real thing in order to survive and to thrive in life. And when we try and content ourselves with lust, with lies, with greed, with envy, and so on, it's like we're trying to live out a life with plastic food with a wooden kitchen, with nothing that's real. It doesn't nourish us. It only kills us the more we rely upon that thing. But God himself has conquered and won a victory for us. And so it's crazy that we would live that life when we have this other life given to us freely by God himself. Perfect life. Perfect existence. When God says, turn from sin and follow Jesus... He is asking us to do something that is hard. It will be tough. And when we look at the lives of people around about us, sometimes it looks like it isn't worth it at all. We have to give up all sorts of things. We have to do things that we would rather not do sometimes, sharing our faith, denying ourselves certain things. But it is all exactly because we have been given victory over sin, and the consistent life to live with victory over sin is that life. This is what it is to know Jesus to truly know him, to know the victory that he brings, the fact that he has conquered us completely. This is why Jesus and the apostles say with incredulous voices in the New Testament, why would you ever receive that life and all of its wonder and glory and go back to the old way of being? It's lunacy. And so it is. So much better with God So much better in his kingdom, in his way. So much more joyful and fulfilling and satisfying, even in hardship. As hard as the Christian life may be. So worth it in every way. When you talk about knowing Jesus at Christmas time, do you know him as the one who has come to conquer you? To take you captive by his word and by His Spirit, through His work on the cross, so that you will live in this way and find fulfillment and joy in life. Is that how you know Jesus? Or do you know facts about Him? I want to challenge you this morning because it's a reality for a great many people who would come to church and and claim the name of Christ, that we know His name and we know facts, but we don't really know Him. He's come to conquer you, to make you His own, is that how you know him? Is that what you know? A life taken captive to be lived in this way for his glory. I want to encourage you this morning to consider that life and to know him in that way this Advent season. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your people, and we thank you for the work that Jesus has done on our behalf coming at Christmas time living that perfect life, dying that perfect death. And Lord God, we come here week by week and we hear hear these truths. And Lord, we don't want to be those on that last day that have to say that we heard it time and again, but it meant nothing to us other than simple statements of fact. Lord God, help us to know our Savior, to have that life, to live in that way, to follow where he leads as our shepherd, to be cared for him in a way that is fit and right with the new life he has given, however hard it may be, however difficult it is to follow in that way. For Lord, that is what it is to truly know Jesus. It is to be taken captive by him, to be conquered and then to go and tell others that they might be conquered also. Lord God, we want to rejoice and give you praise and, and thanks this morning that we read in your word, come the end at Revelation, that the nations of this world, however sinful they may be, are one day conquered by you, by Christ's work, and will be taken captive, and will be uh, subsumed into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But Lord, the way to see that done, to see people from every tribe and tongue and nation taken captive by you is to live captive lives ourselves. So that when we call others to follow, they will see the life that the Christian is to live and will run to it rather than from it. Lord God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name because Jesus' name alone is the name through which salvation will come. There is no name under heaven given by which men may be saved than that. And so, Lord, we come and we ask in Jesus' name that you would hear our cry. You would respond to us, Lord, and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, take us captive this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.